Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you everybody. We're about to start. Hello, welcome to, <clears throat> welcome to the fantastic fiction readings at KGB a monthly series that is run by myself. Oh, no, he's taking pictures of me, which I can delete, though. <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm Ellen Datlow, and that's Matthew Kressel, and we run this gig. That's not hard. At least give me, do it from here so you don't do all chin. But, no, you have to do it up here, this way. I know how to do it. You do it this way. Get rid of the chin. Okay. And this goes out when we, oh, we're doing audio. We're doing this audio now, and I didn't realize that uh, last month's uh, reading is online, uh, but I didn't announce it. Matt said he did, and I kind of missed it. And who was last month? I don't even remember. It was, um, yeah. <laughs> anyone, <laughs> whoever, two guys. Whoever, went, whoever, did a, whoever did last month is up on, our, oh, on the uh, KGB. Yes, and they read very well, so you might want to go and check out their audio. Anyway... Um, we have books for sale in the back and the, from Word Bookstore, and we have copies of Uploaded, which is, I'm sorry, yeah, I should read, sorry, <clears throat> Upgraded, um, edited by Neil Clark, which E. Lily Hugh is in, and we have copies of Genevieve, Val- Gen- Genevieve Valentine's new novel, which of course I don't have down there, The Girl in the... the, the King Club. Thank you, The Girl of the Kingfish Club, that's for sale, and also The Cutting Room, which... <clears throat> Genevieve is in and just came out. My is an anthology that I edited, and I didn't realize Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, um, which Genevieve is in. I guess yes. That's why we must have it here. I don't even remember. I can't keep track. <laughs> um, anyway, E. Lily Yu received the 2012 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Her stories have been finalists for the Hugo, Nebula, Sturgeon. Award, Locus Award, and World Fantasy Awards. And again, her latest one appears in Upgraded, edited by Neil Clark. Um, Lily was a student of mine at Clarion West, and she didn't really need to go to Clarion West. I mean, she was publishing and doing really well before she got to Clarion. But I'm glad she was one of my students anyway. So please welcome E. Lily Yu. Hello all. Um, just want to add that Genevieve Valentine also has a story in Upgraded, and the bookseller went to some difficulty to get copies of it, so... Please buy it. <laughs> There's only about five, five, six copies back there. I'm just saying you might want to edge toward the door now. The story I'm reading tonight is in Upgraded. It's Musée de l'Emsoul. Should I... Just want to make the volume okay. a little higher for the people in the back. I'm quiet. Yeah. Is that good? I'm also going to... Did you hear her in the back? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah? Okay. Thank you. Try. Is this good? Back people, can you hear me? Move your, okay, cool. Thanks a lot. I usually don't have to stand up to take pictures, but the, we have a, the light. The light's work, fun. It's a big light. That yeah. Doesn't usually, so I'm going to be standing up a little bit. Thanks a lot to Ellen, Ellen Dallon, Matt Kressel for inviting me. And the story I'm reading is Musée de l'Emsoul. 
It was a bus skidding off a rain-slick ribbon of a road, everyone for a moment in flight, levitating from their seats, then the sheer and scream of metal. This is what distinguishes you from others. For whether you were shot to bits in a war, or whether a telephone pole crushed your liver against the steering wheel, the procedure is the same. You can assume what happened after that. Unless you are wildly rich, and you are not, the puddles of your organs were scooped out and replaced with artificial tissues that performed the necessary filtration, synthesis, and excretion for a fraction of the price of a transplant. Splintered bones become slim metal shafts. Ceramic scales cover ruined skin. They wheeled you out of the operating room, hooked up to a bouquet of tubes, batteries, and drains. A grid of lights screwed into your plates, blinking red, blue, green, stable, functioning, okay. As the drugs wore off, you began to fumble at the strange new surfaces of your body. Your lover was in Zanzibar on a lucrative minerals contract and did not hear about your accident until after they had patched you up enough to tap out the first of many detailed emails. The damage was extensive. Your reconstruction complicated. For the rest of your life, you will need a constant power supply, a backup generator, and hourly system flushes. You could choose to live homebound, they say, never passing your door. They quote you the prices of the various adapters and chargers you need, and you laugh and cannot stop laughing, lightning balls of pain throughout your unfamiliar body. Or, the nurses say, nervously thumbing down their screens, you can move to an experimental city in Washington designed for patients like you, where you would enjoy a certain degree of freedom and company. They do not add, a place where everyone looks like you, but their eyes shine with kindness. Your lover offers to pay for the house installation. If nothing else, you should give him credit for that. One nurse makes sure you're loaned a set of equipment from the hospital for your transitional period. You consider absconding with the adapters. If the, prices are to be if the prices are to be believed, they're worth a small Caribbean island or two, but you can't extract the tracking tags. Besides, the nurse was nice. You ship two cardboard boxes to the address they give you and sell the rest. You give away your pair of bajerigars because you can't take them with you. Your lover never liked them. Too noisy, too messy, too demanding. They chewed up the claw-footed chair from his grandfather's estate, the little chips and knocks like angry kisses in the gloss. Unexpected difficulties with buses and trains and airlines keep your beloved in Zanzibar. So when it's time to leave, your friends do the heavy lifting for you. They're polite. They try not to stare. What a dipshit, you hear one mutter, unhooking a photo of your lover. And she is right. He should be here with you, packing sweaters you can't wear anymore in plastic, boxing up your dinner plates. You take the medical flight that leaves twice a month, your new address printed on a plastic strip around your wrist. Your college roommate sees you off. You hand over your borrowed equipment at the gate, shrugging off the promises of care packages and visits. You flinch from the hug. You don't look back. The air is sweet on your exposed skin when you first see the square mile of concrete that is revival. At the center of the city, a sheaf of faceted skyscrapers floats above a squat white mall. Rings of smaller apartments slope down and away, glass and steel congealing to stucco, brick, and concrete as they approach the city lim limits, where bu buildings meet crisp dark pines, sharp as cuts. Far beyond the pines rise whitened mountains like licked ice cream. You will dream sometimes of climbing those mountains and plunging your face into soft, shocking snow. It is impossible, of course. Your batteries have enough charge for a couple of hours, but without fresh supplies of lymph and plasma, there's only so much your filters can do. The city newsroom is staffed by former war reporters, bulletproof and bitter, 
And every couple of months, there's a story about a disconnection, either accidental or deliberate. In determinedly cheerful emails, you recount to your lover everything that he has missed. You have been assigned a 15 by 15 room with enormous windows in the southeast corner of Revival. You have not yet bought a mirror. Very few stores stock them, and you're not sure you want one. Pets are prohibited. Rent is moderate, but food prices are inflated, and the utility bills are astronomical. Double-digit municipal taxes give you a slight headache. The consortium of medical providers managing the city is nominally a nonprofit, but you do the numbers on the back of an electricity bill and figure the executives must be drawing large salaries. Since you are an accountant, you can work remotely. Your clients, who heard about the crash and have offered the timid condolences, assure you that it does not matter to them whether you are based in Des Moines or Los Angeles or Revival, Washington. Other residents are not so lucky. Their debts are paid for out of their retirement savings or their estate, or alternatively, by the sale of their genome and medical history and whatever organic components remain at the time of their death. The lease document makes for an interesting read. You tear the pages into tiny strips as you go. <laughs> All too soon, you memorize the silver line of cables and pumps that strings apartment block to apartment block, running through grocery store aisles and along library shelves, and shooting up the five floors of a bright, sterile mall. You know where it turns at the end of the pavement, in the shadow of the pines, and loops back toward the mall. A local joke has it that the silver lines, if viewed from above, if all the intervening roofs and floors and ceilings were removed, spell out freedom. The city is lousy with crows, who dive for flashes of metal and glints of porcelain. They are not discouraged by, 50, by 30 failed attempts if, on the 31st, they snatch a pin, a lens, a loose filament. They are easy to fend off, but the cold acquisitiveness in their eyes makes you shiver. Your lover comes to visit you only once, four and a half months after you move to Revival. You are slow, limping, and a minute late. He climbs out of the taxi in his pressed suit and razor tie and looks around, fiddling with a button, cufflinks, hair. You are grateful that he recognizes you immediately. But he shrinks back a fraction of an inch when his eyes reach the steel screwed into your face and the coarse, fitful wires that grow where your skull is shaved. You are surprised. In Revival, where glamour magazines gather dust and fade, you are considered beautiful. Eyes slide toward you on the street. You had almost forgotten about the seams and screws, the viscous yellow and red fluids trickling in and out of you, the cables tangling everywhere. If you are honest with yourself, as you suddenly have to be, standing face to face with, yourself, with him, the two of you have not been lovers for some time. Right before the accident, you had agreed to separate for six months as an audit of the relationship. You fed sunflower seeds to Tessie as he talked about opportunities in Tanzania, about looking for clarity in his life, his need to feel whole, like a hammer swing, a home run, his entire, his entire body committed to one motion. You nodded, you admitted the solidity of his arguments, and he stroked the budgie so roughly it bit your finger. While you were apart, he wrote a, par you wrote a, par uh, he wrote a paragraph once a week in response to your daily emails. You would reread it three or four times, looking for the alighted thought, the sunken meaning, it was October, the busy season, and you were starting to make mistakes and lose paperwork. When the last return was triple-checked and filed, you heaved a sigh of relief and boarded a bus for Maine, where you would spend your vacation with a friend. It was raining. Water entered an unnoticed hole in the toe of your boot, and you wrote a brief grumble to your love. Then the bus rumbled into the night, and you shut your eyes and let yourself relax. So you are not exactly together, you realize, as you take a stiff arm. Together, you go to the third nicest restaurant in the city for lunch. 
Your lover cannot stop star staring at the servers, who are mostly inorganic by now and capable of carrying hundreds of pounds on each slender, tempered arm. His brows stitch together, and all the filet mignon in the world can't undo them. Afterwards, he follows you to your apartment and undresses you with clumsy hands, snagging sleeves on tubes and almost unplugging your drip. But he cannot bring himself to touch the ceramic place of your abdomen, which vibrates softly from the tiny motors underneath. You are disappointed, but not altogether surprised. You see your lover off with the driest of kisses. Then you compose a long email that is gentle and gracious, that is all the best parts of you gathered on the screen. Your former, former lover does not reply. He wants a window display life, your old roommate says when you call. Finally, ashamed of your silence, your sticky sniffling. You're not perfect enough for that, not anymore. And she is right. You try to find friends. Revival is a city, after all. You smile at people in the library as they browse books, music, electronics, language implants, avoiding the woman in the mystery section who is methodically tearing apart paperbacks. <laughs> Most of the librarians are asleep at their desks. You chat up tired cashiers. You sit in the synthetic park, feeding bread to a duck paddling circles in the fountain. But the people you meet are still in various stages of recovery. They can only talk about the passive-aggressive bosses, the snowballing interest on their credit cards, the diagnoses, the lost loves, the affairs, and then the tequila that proceeded to leap off a bridge, or the microwave dinners the children ate before they piled into the van for judo class, nine minutes before the other car roared through a red light and everything shattered. If only there were do-overs, if only there were apologies, if only the last meal could have been homemade chicken soup or macaroni and cheese, if only. It is interesting and terrible the first time, but when you run into them later, they recite the same stories with a tragic and farcical earnestness of wind-up toys, and you make hasty excuses and leave. Eight months after you arrive in a revival, you make an appointment for the repairs. Your left lung, which is silicon rubber, has a small tear, and you are also due for a heart check. The clinic is one of two, staffed with five doctors and 15 technicians, none of whom have missing pieces or live in the city. Your technician, Joel, is young, lean, and cheerful, with a strong nose and wild brown hair recently harrowed by a comb. Hey, stranger, he says. First time, let's have a look. He winds your tubes around one arm so they don't obstruct his hands and looks expectantly at you. Suddenly, you are too shy to open up your body to him to expose the secret gushing and dripping of pump and membrane and diaphragm, the click and thump of your hematic plastic heart. It'll be fine, he says. You've got a Mark V heart and the D3415 lung assembly. I did my certs on both of those, so I know them better than anything. I collect defective parts, and I can almost never find Mark Vs. They don't break. His palm is warm on your ventral plates. He inserts his fingertips into the seam depression where they overlap and parts the plates with surprising delicacy. Because your body was rebuilt for other people to troubleshoot, you cannot see the gauges and displays that he studies with wrinkled brow. Although you know they're there, you've heard them ticking and whirring at night. Looking great, he says. Mm. You do a good job of taking care of this thing. He reaches into your chest. You close your eyes and imagine that your heart is your own, wet and yielding to his thumbs, not a mass-produced model identical to hundreds of others he has inspected and installed. You wonder what his hair would feel like between your rema remaining fingers. Corn silk, merino, mink. In 10 minutes, Joel patches your lung and proclaims your Mark V a beautiful ticker. You compliment him on the job. Already you can feel the extra oxygen brightening your blood, and the dull headache that has followed you all week fades. You are feeling so improved, in fact, that before you can think better of it, you invite him to coffee. 
His mouth opens into a circle. You can see the glint of your zygomatic plate on the surface of his eyes. The inner tips of his eyebrows lift with pity. Well, isn't this awkward, he says, attempting a smile. Never happened to me before. You would be amused by his panic if it were not so painful. You mumble something or other. Bit of a doctor-patient relationship, even if I'm not a doctor. You know. You do know. Your cheeks burn like torches the entire walk home. Today, the rigid, brilliant architecture of the city seems like too much to bear. Your image flares at you from windows and glass doors. Yes, you're ugly. Yes, you're broken. Briefly, you consider disconnecting yourself and plunging into the trees in the few minutes before you collapse and all your diagnostic lights go red. You walk to the edge of the woods and sit quietly on the pavement, looking into the undergrowth. The trees are full of crows. Every few feet, the grass is punctuated with a black pinion feather. Somewhere in these woods, the crows are building nests with wire, silicone, plastic, sequins of steel. You listen to their quarreling and think regretfully of your green and yellow budgies. Sweet-voiced things, your idea of love. They nuzzled your fingers and each other, unworried, content, knowing there'd be seeds in the feeder and water every morning. You are motionless for so long that one crow flaps down to inspect you, eyeing his reflection in your metal side. He pecks. Once, twice. You have been working a loose wire out of your neck, which was wound up somewhere inside you but is now poking out, and you twist it off and hold out the gleaming piece. He yanks it from your fingers and flees. Immediately, two more crows drop out of the trees to pummel him. You watch his oily back disappear into a squall of black bodies, reappear, disappear again. As they fight, black beak, jet claw, ragged bundles of greed, you remember what it meant to feel desire. Over the course of a week, as a glittering shape flowers inside your head, you examine your budget, your savings, your expenses. You order 12 carnival mirrors and set them up in your apartment. There is no more room for your bed, so you sell that to a new arrival. You also buy three industrial robots, rusted and caked in machine oil. The boxes arrive thick and fast, and your apartment manager, who knows the square footage of your room, raises his single eyebrow at you when you come to collect them. Now, everywhere you turn, you confront an elastic vision of yourself, stretching as high as the ceiling and snapping to the shortness of a child. The eyes in the mirror gradually lose their fear. You write about everything to your former lover as a matter of habit, not expecting a reply. Biting your cheek, you call Joel to ask where he can buy faulty artificial organs. He listens to your flustered explanation and gives you contacts as well as three hearts, mark one, two, and four, out of his own collection. You balance them in the robot's pincers like apples in a bowl. With a net and a handful of bread, you catch birds on the roof house sparrows, rock pigeons, crows, an unhappy seagull. You release the birds in your room, in your glass coffin crammed with carnival mirrors. They batter themselves against the window and shit on the mirrors and on you. Your room is all trapped, frantic emotion, uh, exaggerated in swells and rolls of glass. People look sideways at you when you leave your room. Your chrome and steel parts streak with white. You look at your slumped, stretched, stained reflections and recognize nothing and no one. Sometimes, when the room is dark, you can admit that you are making this for someone who will never see it, who will never come back, who will never write to you. Then you roll onto your good side and listen to the flurry of wings until you fall asleep. You set out neatly lettered signs in your window and on your door. Musée de l'Emseul. Signage is probably against building regulations, but you use the shreds of your lease to line your room. You run a notice in the news that is two inches by two inches. 
Saturdays and Sundays. You keep your door unlocked. You feed the birds. You wipe down the hearts. And you wait. Joel comes to see you, or perhaps to see what you've done with his hearts. Where do you sleep? He says, looking around. Anywhere, you say. His expression says he thinks parts other than your lung need examining. But he is also curious. He touches the orange arms curled around artificial ventricles, the frozen rovers sprouting substitute livers at odd angles. I'm not very good at art, he says. A sparrow shits in his hair. You offer to wipe up the mess. You're already wetting a towel on the sink, but he has to leave. He's meeting someone somewhere else. He has left his jacket at the clinic. He is late. Two weeks later, on a Sunday morning, one more person walks into your museum. She swings open your door and is surprised into laughter by a burst of gray wings. She's even uglier than you are, most of her face gone, hard, bright camera lenses for eyes. She has glued pages of books and playbills over her carapace. I was an actress, she says. She has been in all the shows that she wears. The pages come from books that she liked but couldn't keep. Her name is Nim. She has been in the city of Urbe Condita, she says, meaning four years ago, when it was 15 residents and three doctors and one building. She walks around your room as she talks, studying the mirrors, the machines, the birds, the bounce of her own reflection. Without asking permission, she shoves a window open and shoes out the birds. They leave in one long shout of white and gray and brown. Flecks of down spin and swirl in their wake. You ask her how long it took to remember how to walk, how to function, how to smile. Two weeks, three months, two years. She shrugs. Sooner or later. Nim has no hair, only a complex web of filaments across her metal skull, flickering her thoughts in patterns too quick to follow. Her hands are small and dark and unscarred. Look, she says, touching the skin of your cheek, showing off her lean titanium legs. Together we make one whole person. More than that, you want to say, as you add up fingers and toes and organs and elbows, a sum that is greater than one, more than two. But you're tongue-tied and dazed. You realize that you stink of birds and bird shit. She smiles at your confusion. I'll bring you some gloves and cleaning supplies. What for, you say stupidly. To shine up this place. But this is what I am, you say. This is what I look like. You stretch out your hands to indicate the mirrors, the stained, spattered floors, the streaked walls. You could use a spit and polish, too, frankly. She demonstrates, using her sleeve, and you blush. But why are you here, you ask. Why is she touching you with gentleness? You are afraid that this is all an accident, a colossal misunderstanding, that she'll walk out, the, out of the door and vanish like your sparrows. I'm looking for a collaborator, she says. I've got an idea, performance art, public service. If you can clean up and come for lunch tomorrow, I'll tell you about it. Inside you, a window opens. That was when you stopped writing to me. Your long, careful emails came to an end. What is there to say? The stories of people we have loved and injured and deserted are incomplete to us. If I could write an ending for you, it would be Nim holding your new hand in hers, Nim tickling your back until you wheeze with laughter, the two of you commandeering an office block for a new museum, a museum of broken and repaired people, where anyone for an hour or three can pose in the spotlight and glitter, glisten, gleam, haloed in light, light leap off the, leaping off the white teeth of their laughter. But it is never that easy, and that is not my right. You knew, I think, before I did, that no one can have a life that is without questions, without cracks, and now you are the deepest one in mine. Here is what I have, a year and two months of emails, a restaurant check, a glossy fragment from a magazine, two inches by two inches, terse, 
Okay. Musée de l'Homme Reparé. Saturdays and Sundays. Revival. Washington. What could I say? What could I ever say? Thank you. We're going to take a short break now, buy books, buy drinks. Um, no, seriously, KGB lets us do this for free every month, and all they get out of it, hopefully, is some, some, you know, some payment cash. for drinks. Some cash. <laughs> yes, cold hard cash. So please buy a drink, whether it's alcoholic or not. And um, if you want to buy a book, our readers will be happy to sign them for you. And we'll be back in about 10 minutes. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, Sandra Martinez for her audio editing, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.